Well, throughout this year, we uh, as a church have been kind of orienting ourselves around what it means and what it looks like to be a growing forward people, growing in maturity in our relationship with the Lord, and also what it means to be a sent forward people with the gospel uh, to others. And uh, we spent the first part of this year talking about forward and what it looks like to be growing forward. And then here in uh, August, September, and October, we keyed ourselves in on being sent forwards of people uh, permeating the west side of Indianapolis and just laying some groundwork for what it looks like to be a, a sent forward people. And really out of that, we decided to take four weeks here and to kind of have four apologetic Sundays, which is kind of unique Sundays to have. Uh, and so far, we've talked about a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, uh, can we trust the Bible? And I took that Sunday and just taking a look at liter- from the literary reality of it, the historical reality of it. Can we trust the Bible? And yes, I believe we can fully trust the Bible uh, in what we have is the 66 books of the Bible. And then uh, last week, Pastor Chris so well uh, talked about do always lead to God, a very common thought nowadays. And just the answer to that, even just logically, the answer to that is no, they, they don't. Uh, in that uh, next Sunday, Pastor Eric is going to take our heaven and hell real, a real question that's going on today. For a lot of people, uh, both without Christ and, frankly, even those with Christ, are beginning to debate that whole issue. And then today, I'm going to be taking the question of, can there be joy in the junk and hope in the hurt? Can there be joy in the junk and hope in the hurt? Well, I'm kind of talking about where we've come from. Uh, Let me just uh, take a moment here and talk about what's ahead so you're aware of that. After Pastor Eric, next Sunday is Thanksgiving Sunday. I'm going to be taking that Sunday. I'm going to be preaching on gratefulness, and that's been my word for the year. And uh, what I've learned about gratefulness from Scripture. We'll take that. And then in December, we're going to jump into a Christmas series called The Light Entered. The Light Entered. And as the theme of this year has been uh, a catching threads through Scripture, capturing themes through the entirety of Scripture, kind of a systematic theology reality for us as a church this year. We're going to do the same with Christmas. So Pastor Chris, we're sharing this one, uh, this series, and Pastor Chris is going to pick up with The Light Entered Creation. We're going to start in Genesis and uh, take a look at that. And then we're going to, in the Old Testament, Pastor Eric is going to pick up and the light entered life. And then uh, as Pastor Nate's going to take in, the light entered as the light of men, really Old Testament into the New Testament. And then I'm going to be taking the Christmas Eve services with uh, the light entered as Emmanuel. And then I'll also be taking the uh, New Year's Eve services, the light entered eternity when we're going to go to Revelation 21 and 22 uh, with that. And then after that, Sunday, January 8th, We're going to be entering into the book of Philippians, back to a book, thrilled about that, and going back into the book of Philippians, and that's going to be a shared series as well, and looking forward to that. So that gives you a little heads up. Today, can there be joy in the junk, hope in the hurt? Um, I want to note a cousin question to this question. Maybe it's really the parent question to this question, but we all know this question. Why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen? I'm not using that question today because actually it's the wrong question. It's a faulty question. And I say that because think about it. Why do bad things happen? It's grounded in the presumption that life should be filled with all good. It's grounded in the presumption that actually bad things are the foreign objects in what should be a blissful life. But that's completely oblivious to the whole reality of a redemptive story. Friends, this is not heaven. Uh, Could I say biblically? 
This is actually hell on earth for a season until it's heaven on earth with the Lord. And the questions are important to ask. And plus, I'll add, the question, uh, why, why do bad things happen, really puts us in a place of questioning God and his character and who he is. Uh, uh, God, you say you're good, uh, but bad is everywhere. Clearly, there's an error in you. Explain yourself, God. Do you see the problem there? Uh, that's not the way it works, friends. I understand the question, but it's the wrong question. The right question is actually, why does anything good ever happen? That's the right question. You see, the question, why does anything bad happen? Actually, it assumes that God is broken. The question, why does anything right happen? Assumes we are broken. And that is the truth of it. So I just want to uh, note here, as we're talking about apologetics, that right questions matter. And your conversations with people and helping them and helping you think about the right questions are really important. So I'm putting the question on today, this kind of cousin question of all this subject is, is why is there, uh, can there be joy in the junk and hope in the hurt? By the way, I want for you to know it's not a how to have today. It's really a yes, no question. Can there be? I just want to note for this for you today. I might unsettle you today. You might walk out shook today. And I'm actually okay with that. Um, this is not a point-counterpoint apologetics kind of a, a, a conversation today. We're going to go into the heart of it, and I'm going to tell you it takes a real man and a real woman to enter into this kind of conversation. Willing to be able to think, and I'm going to push your thinking from Scripture. And you may walk out today more unsettled than settled. But that's okay. Because God loves people who think and are willing to deal with depth on issues and not fluffy on issues. Two texts for today. First one, Genesis chapter three, would you open there? You gotta start here on this whole conversation. You gotta start on this whole conversation, whether it's the question of why do bad things happen or why does anything good ever happen or whether it's the question we have today, can there be joy in the junk or hope in the hurt? You've gotta go to the beginning and you have to understand where we live today. Genesis chapter three, we're just gonna take a couple moments here and then we're going to go to one of the most fascinating, one of the most mind-bending books of the Bible. We're going to go to the book of Job right after this. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, let me begin in verse 1. Now the serpent, Satan, was more crafty, more shrewd than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he, Satan, said to the woman, Eve, uh, did God actually say you shall eat, any, uh, eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, <laughs> this is just crazy cool stuff. Uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. You go, girl. She's spot on with this. She's taken Satan on with what God said. By the way, there's a point in that. You go to battle with what God has said is how you wore it. And there's one thing in all of the Garden of Eden that God says, that's my thing. Why do we have a problem with that? Why do we have a problem that God said, you know what, all this, I'm going to invite you in, but I've got one thing that's my thing. No, I want the golden ticket, Daddy. Right? That's a theological movie. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and we probably would have too. And then verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and it all went downhill. That's the moment when sin entered the picture and we now live in a broken world as broken people around other broken people. This isn't the Garden of Eden anymore, friends. And we need to come to the reality of that. In this whole conversation, can there be good, can, can there be a joy in the junk and hope in the hurt? I just want to know, what was Satan's issue? What was Satan's issue with God? We even see it creep up here in, in this text of it. Uh, uh, it's, it's God's holding back. Uh, that's where he had a problem with God himself as creator. You see, God is holding back. Uh, 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 God is unfair. Hmm. Right? Yeah, that's what's going on with it. By the way, what then comes Adam and Eve's issue? Yeah, God is holding back. God is unfair. This is the battle of the heart, friends, and this is the battle where it all starts right for us, and we're just like Adam and Eve, and there's a war within us that's honestly just like Satan with battling with God. Oh, God, I think I know better than you. And friends, from the time of Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve bit it to the time of Revelation 21 when all of this will be turned upside down and inside out in a new heaven and a new earth, with the Lord for those in Christ. Know this, until that time, the story is broken people living in a broken world. And in a broken world filled with broken people, why does anything good ever happen? Can there be joy in the junk? Because there is junk. Can there be hope in the hurt? Because there is can there be? Well, let's go from there to the book of Job. God help us as we enter this book, the book of Job. Four movements I'm going to be having us take a look at today in the book of Job. Uh, number one, uh, the scenes are set in the beginning part of uh, chapter one. And then uh, number two, all hell breaks loose. And then number three, all counsel breaks loose. It takes us to the chapter 38. Uh, then the Lord steps in to speak. Let's begin with the scenes are set. Uh, we start with the scene being set on earth. Okay, the scene is being sent on earth. Keep Genesis 3 in mind. This is the earth that uh, we exist in. Uh, verse 1 through 3. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. And one who feared God and turned away from evil. And there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. And he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and 500 yoke of, of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. I want to point out, this is not a fictitious character. This is not an allegory. There is nothing in the opening sentences, opening paragraph, in the entire book of, Bo, book of Job that leads us to the idea that the book of Job is an allegory. It's not about a man in the land of Oz with munchkins and color-changing horses and a, and a con artist wizard. It's not about that. 
It's about a real man. It's about a real man with real godly character. A real man with real godly character and real children in a real agricultural empire who's a real husband and a real father doing real life. And his name was Job. He's real. And Job had a large family. Ten kids. We had two. Makes me feel small. Ten kids. He had a mega business empire of the day. 11,000 animals in that day. It was a massive corporate reality and with a massive staff to run 11,000 animals. No electricity, no tractors, no automatic feeding bins. The massive staff that would take to do that, all doing it by hand. And he was a business mogul that loved and feared God. How cool is that? A man, a husband, a father, a business tycoon who lived set apart unto the Lord. And we're told he was blameless. Remember that. And upright and fearing God and turning from evil. But he was not a perfect man. Please understand that. He was a man like you and me. And yet him, in his life, he was a man who had a passionate pursuit of the radiant God. By the way, if you're taking notes, here's the statement for Job. Job lived big for God because Job saw God big. Job lived big for God because Job saw God big. Have a small view of God, I'm telling you, you will live small for God. It's just true. You have a big view of God, it'll be a big life for God. You want to mature in your walk with God, that's why seeing God bigger is the key. The bigger you see God, the bigger you will live for him in this life. And this is a book that pushes us in that reality of it. Let's pick up verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of, of each on his day, and, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning, offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their heart. And thus Job did continually. A God-fearing dad who loved his sons and daughters and who went to the mat for their spiritual lives. By the way, it's very possible Job was possibly literary, the, the first book of the Old Testament written. He didn't have the whole Old Testament. He definitely didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have all the things that we have, and yet Job was one who's pursuing after God. And in all this, what's really going on is at each child's birthday, there would be this feast that would include the siblings. By the way, what a family testimony. And it wasn't a drunken binge party kind of a thing. It was a family celebration. And afterward, Job would act as the Old Testament family father, officiating as a priest on behalf of his children. How cool is that, dads? Hey, dads. Kids making it into the NFL or NBA or World Series is not the issue. Your kids being successful in this life is not the issue. Your kids having a deep love for the Lord and pursuing after the Lord, that's the issue. By the way, I just have to say in this, kids, adults, this is not the time to judge your father. 
wives, moms. This is not the time to judge your husband or your children's dad. This is the time for everyone in this room to be humble and willing to hear and learn from the Lord. Not the time to judge. It's a scene on earth. Let's go to the scene in heaven, verse 6. This is crazy. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. Oh, this is crazy. You just got to picture this whole thing. They came to present themselves before the Lord. Was it the angelic beings? Was it the, the fallen angels? Was it both? Was it God's people who lived before Job? Was it a mix? Was it all of them? That's not the conversation today. The key part of it is, is I'll just say this. There are celestial beings that are here presenting themselves before the Lord. And the key character that's picked out is who? Satan. Satan is the one who is picked out here. He is the adversary. He is the opposer of anything and of anyone of God's. And Satan is presenting himself before the Lord. Oh, that's so theologically crazy in all that. And then verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Oh, the Lord knew. But this is what the Lord does. Even Jesus in in the incarnate Lord asks again questions to get people to talk it out. Uh, Where where have you uh, been? And uh, Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Creepy. And it's not a joke. If one thing stands out of this whole book, friends, this life is serious. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God points out Job to Satan. That tells us so much. God knows what's going on in our lives. God knows how we're thinking, how we're reacting on it, because God knows he's blameless and upright. And Job, also a created being, like Satan, a created being, God is saying, created being, have you seen this created being? Hey, unfaithful created being who has an issue with me, are, have you, as you're in your creepy walking to and fro on the earth, have you taken a look at this created being who is living faithfully and upright unto me? Have you seen that? Huh, huh, huh. And that's in the Hebrew in there. <laughs> if you ever wonder if the Lord's paying attention, friends, he is. You have to understand this is the core to the entire book of Job of which nowhere in the book of Job do we find Job understanding or being told that this is going on. Trials and travesties you might be going through now. Have you ever thought that maybe not only is God wanting to use those in your life and in the lives of others, but have you ever thought that maybe even the Lord is using that for you to be a testimony to celestial beings. And I'm not kidding. Verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? 
You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. You've pampered him, Lord, no wonder. Verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So many theology things in that. The scenes are set, and then all hell breaks loose. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job, and he said, the oxen were plowing the donkeys, feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck them down with the, uh, down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. By the way, have you already know Satan is using people to bring travesty. And even in this, there is a quote, natural, like might, might, might say thunder and lightning coming down to being travesty. And while he was yet speaking, there came another, verse 17, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, the 3,000 camels, the 7,000 sheep, all the hired hands, Job's seven sons and three daughters taken, gone. And I'm just going to say it Satan sucks. And the tycoon is now without. Father is now fatherless. The man of God is now laid bare. And a roaring lion is prowling and devouring. Friends, this is not heaven. We live in a spiritual war zone for the soul and there's a war going on. And I am concerned that I and you are far too often living ignorant and blind. And no wonder we struggle. Doug, all of these lives cut short. How fair is that? Oh, I get that question. Just imagine with me, just for a moment. Just imagine that we're, we're, we're given the opportunity to kind of walk into the heavenly throne room to ask this question of how this is unfair. I'll say this, number one. Um, if we were to uh, go, I think the nanosecond that we enter the presence of the Lord, we won't even be able to have the ability to ask the question because Isaiah 6, woe is me, in Revelation 1, I think I'm going to die, is going to happen. In the holy presence of the Lord. 
Oh, we think the Lord is too much like us. Yeah, like when I see him, I'm going to go toe-to-toe with him. Yeah. You ain't going to even ask one question and you're going to be on your face in the holy presence of the Lord. By the way, I'll just say this. Let's just say the question is able to be asked in that. And let's just assume that all of the animals, let's just say they're all there. Let's just say the animals are there and let's say all the hired hands are there and let's say his children are there. All those who knew the Lord in that are there with the Lord and they hear your question. That's so unfair that you took them from us. They're going to be responding like, are you kidding me? We're here. I feel bad for you. Right? Like, again, we think this is the awesome place. I don't take away the pain of a lost child. Oh, I don't take that away. I don't take the pain away of a lost anybody. But we have to step back in it, and if they are with the Lord, oh, friend, they're fine. They ache for you and me. How will Job respond? Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground. And worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall I return. And the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in this, all of this, all of this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. By the way, be very careful in this because if you think if Job is like, oh, this is a song moment. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Not happening because the beginning of it tells us that he tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground. He is aching in utter agony, 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 pain, pain pain, chaos, 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 crush, crush, crush. And it's not about getting out of the pain. It's about in the pain, still worshiping God in the pain. I'm telling you, that's man. Trials reveal. Trials reveal what's really in us. Trials reveal how we think about God. Trials reveal how we think about life. Mark chapter 4, 1 Peter 1, Philippians chapter 1, trials reveal. Chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. This sounds familiar. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and sent from going to and from the earth and from walking up and down on it. Creepy again. Verse three. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless, upright man who fears God, turns away from evil. We've already heard this story except for the next sentence. He still holds fast his integrity although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord, as Satan always does. He just is a creep. Skin for skin. All that a man has will be given for his life. Uh, But stretch out your hand, touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, struck down Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. 
took a piece of pot, broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Friends, I can't even imagine the whole of it all. And it's out of this that all of a sudden all hell breaks loose. I'm sorry, all counsel breaks loose. Verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity, Job? Curse God and die. I just want to say this. I don't falter for a single thing that she says right there because I'd probably be saying it too. Hey, she just lost her seven sons and three daughters. She just lost her family empire. She lost it too. And I understand her and I ache for her and I'm like, I get it. But he said to her, oh, you speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall not receive evil? Oh, that's fascinating. In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Verse 11, and his friends come. And when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. How kind. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. By the way, it doesn't mean that they didn't have conversations together, which I think they did in light of what's about to be said from them. But no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. How kind. Sometimes it's better to say nothing than something in someone's pain. Chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Odd as this sounds, it encourages me because he's human. Verse 3, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. And on and on he goes. End of the chapter for my sighing. Verse 24 comes instead of my bread. My groanings are poured out like water for the thing I feared comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease nor am I quiet. I have no rest but trouble comes. Job's not blind to what's going on. And then after this, his three friends start talking and they shouldn't have. Eliphaz. I'll call him Eliphaz the accuser. Chapter 5, he presses Job that he's living in defiance to God. He accuses Job of disrespecting God. After all, why would God allow this on him if there wasn't some sin going on in his life? That tells you his theology and how he views life. Then we have Bildad, Bildad the condemner, chapter 8. Job, God will not reject a blameless man, implying that Job has blame going on, which we've already heard God himself say that he's blameless. Oh, we are not good judges of other people. 
Zophar. Zophar, the rebuker, it goes to the top, chapter 11. Job, you babble and mock. He talks about worthless men. He literally says stupid men. He talks of iniquity in his hands being alluded to Job. It even gets to the point with Zophar where of rebuking Job for having received less punishment than he actually deserved. You just see out of this text and the dynamic of it all, I'll just say, when life is crushing you, don't be surprised by evaluation and criticism. And sadly, it's often from those closest to you, including God's people. And note that the various responses in counsel are eerily similar to what Satan, the great accuser, might say. Oh, give up your integrity. Curse God. You've been assessed and you've obviously fallen short. Too often we think and talk like Satan himself. And in it, Job defends himself and his right to lament. He denounces his friends for their insistence that he deserves the suffering. And while hanging on to God's greatness, he complains of the injustices he sees, including a seemingly undue cruelty allowed by God. He's human. In chapter 32, after all this, young Elihu steps in. Eight twenties, thirties, be encouraged by this. After listening to the baloney of the older ones, a young godly man steps in and calls them out. Calls them out for the untruths they've been talking. Job's three friends, honestly, as well as Job. And he brings them back to seeing God rightly. And I'll just move to uh, chapter 38 because it's now that the Lord steps in to speak. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Uh, I love that. Out of the whirlwind. I mean the whirlwind of chaos, of, of pain, of agony, of death and destruction. And also out of the whirlwind of a horrible counsel. Just talking in a mess and out of the whirlwind. It's time for God to speak. Verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job, dress for action like a man. I think some of the versions say, gird up your loins, Job. I will question you and you make it known to me. (laughs) Hey, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Verse five, who, who determined its measurement? Well, surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Verse 8, or who, Job? Or verse 12, have you, Job? Verse 16, have you? 18, have you? 22, have you? Have you? 24, what is the way, Job? Uh, 25, who has? Uh, 28, who has? Uh, From whom? From whom? Can you? 31, can you? Do you? Can you? Can you? Woo! Dogs! And you get the 39 and God's not done. Oh, do you know when the mountain goats give birth, Job? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know? And verse 5, who has Job? Who has uh, 10? Can you? Will you? Do you? On and on it goes. Oh, God, can't you just give the dude a hug? He could. And he will. 
Friends, life is far more serious than you and I may be considering this last week. This is not our playground. This is not our pleasure palace. This is a war for the soul. And we clearly see our God's even gotten to a point where he's tired of the pushback. Stop it. Grow up, man up, woman up. And frankly, my response, if I were Joe, would be like, yeah, God, I got a few more words for you. But look, chapter 40, and the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. By the way, if you're in an argument with God right now, I call you to the table to repent. Straight up. Because you aren't going to win this battle. And then Job answered the Lord and said, well, stick it. No. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, "Um, buddy, I'm not done. Dress for action like a man, sit down, gird your loins up, and I will question you and make it known to me. And he does it all again. And in none of this, none of this, does God explain the whole heavenly scene of this is why this is going on? We want to know the why question. God is like, leave that to me. You do the faithful living question. I'll take care of it. And that is hard, isn't it? And that is unsettling, isn't it? And don't you feel within you right now this thing like, ooh, I want to fight with God or this guy who's standing up in front of me? It's in us. Chapter 42, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you, verse five, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. There is junk. That's the world we live in. There is hurt. That is the world that we live in. Can there be joy in it? Can there be hope in it? There can be. But it takes real maturity. It takes someone willing to go to battle with their own soul. By the way, the end of Job finishes with being, us being told all that God then did for Job and the successes he brought. Do not take the book of Job as though that's the result of it. That's what happened with Job, but know this. Christ went to the cross and died. The disciples were martyred. Paul martyred. Tyndale burned at the cross. 
Nabil Qureshi died of stomach cancer at the age of 34. And friends, for you and me, maybe it's going to be pain and martyrdom. Are we ready? Have you noticed today is not a point-by-point apologetics kind of thing? You have to come and experience this to be able to take it from here. Ever since Genesis 3, broken mankind has lived in a broken world surrounded by broken people. And this life isn't a playground for our personal self-bliss. And it certainly isn't heaven on earth. It isn't fake it till you make it or fulfill all your dreams or, or think it and it will happen. Friends, this is a war zone for your soul. And yet there's hope. The end of Genesis 3 tells us that there's hope because God didn't fry him up in the moment. The entire book of Job, particularly the beginning and the latter chapters, tells us that there is hope in it, even if we don't like what maybe what it, it provides in that reality. The work of Christ on the cross, there's hope out of that. Mark chapter 4, there's hope. Philippians 1, hope. James 1, hope. 1 Peter 1, hope. Revelation 21, hope. There can be joy in the junk and there can be hope in the hurt. A joy of junk, of the junk of discouragement or devastation or downtrodden confusion or disarray or destruction or complication in your life, or frustrated elections, or roundabouts, or never-ending construction on Rockville Road. (laughs) Can there be hope in the hurt? Great trials and traumas of life, and failing health, and the horrific hurt of abandonment or abuse, and the hurt of feeling as if God is far off. In the silence of aloneness, in the death of a dream, in the passing of a friend or a sibling or a parent or a child. Like with Ed, my friend and small group member can testify. There can be hope in the herd of the passing of his childhood sweetheart Jackie after being married for 43 years. 